I had uh, asked that you look at the handout and think about the things that we talked about last night. And so, before we begin with today's subject matter, I'd like to know if anyone has any comments or questions about that. Yes? It occurred to me that in, in the West and in the United States in particular, one of the greatest barriers to the belief that awakening is possible in this lifetime is a pretty deep cynicism about spiritual life in, in general. Um, and sometimes it, you know, it just keeps us from fully giving ourselves to the aspiration. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and I, I wonder what we might do to overcome that, that reluctance. That's a, a good question. Cynicism and skepticism. I, I'd say skepticism may be even a bigger part of it. And don't you think that part of that comes from the mixture of vagueness and grandiosity of the descriptions of what the goal is. That's the way it seems to me. It's uh, people, what people hear doesn't really give them a very clear idea of what the goal of the spiritual life is. What it, you know, when we talk about awakening or enlightenment or things like that, it's not a very clear idea. And it's also an idea that has mixed in with it a lot of uh, uh, comic book stuff, um, and superpowers, and uh, things like that. And so, I, I, I think that that when when that's the impression you get, it's understandable that you're going to be a bit skeptical. And yes, I think as far as uh, you know, if we talk about, I used the term modernity last night. We're talking about what's happened in in the West over the last few centuries. We went from a period where uh, our culture was very much dominated by uh, uh, the church, by uh, by Christian church and Catholic church in particular, and we came into a period that's been referred to as the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, you know, things like that. A lot of which was getting beyond uh, superstitions, inflated claims, uh, learning to be more discerning. The age of science came, and, and with science, many of the things that people previously had been taught and thought were true. Um, they realized we're not. And so we're the product of that. And as a product of that, we all have a certain amount of cynicism and skepticism. And no matter how intriguing the possibility, the idea that you're presenting to us is, it's going to meet up with that. you know. And it's probably going to generate within a person a little bit of a struggle between, well, I really, really want to believe this is true. This sounds great. I want this. But then there's some other part saying, yeah, but haven't we been through that a lot before? 
and been disappointed. Right? So I think the most important thing is for us to, if we are able, for our own sake and for anyone else we want to talk to, to have a much clearer understanding of what is it that's really being talked about? What's it like? What form does it take? Then I think that'll make a huge difference. It doesn't mean that we won't still be the people with an inherent tendency to, to cynicism and skepticism, but that's good. A certain amount of that is really good. But as long as what we hear isn't too inflated, you know, uh, too preposterous, then we're willing to entertain it. We're willing to look at it. So I think that that is a very important part. And that is one of the things that I want to talk about. And I'd like for us to see if we can make some movement in that direction over the course of this weekend. Um, the, the Buddha and enlightenment have been presented to us. Uh, the image we have involves a lot of the supernatural and the comic book and things like that. And uh, we need to get beyond that. Who was the Buddha? Why did he do what he did? And what did he become? What did it mean to become an awakened enlightened being? Yes. What is your opinion of integrating the idea that many, many people have of going to heaven? People think if they do really well, they'll go to heaven. And even people who are not strong believers still carry that because it's ingrained in us and our ancestors. Yeah. So can we use that? Because some people do think you'd go to heaven if you're really good and be in heaven on earth. So we have to address that one way or the other. No, you don't have to. Uh, the question of, of, of heaven. Um, can we use it? Yes. Do we have to go one way or the other? No. In other words, we don't have to choose between enlightenment and the belief in uh, uh, life after death in, in heaven. Those, you, you, you can hold those in your mind simultaneously, side by side. Um, or heaven on earth, she said. What's that? Or heaven on earth now as well. Yeah. Uh, well, that's really, enlightenment is more, or what we're calling, what, what we're referring to by the term enlightenment and awakening is more like heaven on earth. And you, what I'm saying is that you can, you can be a Christian and, and believe that you're going to go to heaven if you, if you believe the right things and do the right thing on the one hand. And still practice uh, the Dharma and become an enlightened person. Now, when you become an enlightened person, you might see things in a totally different way. No, that's not true. No mind about it. No mind about it. You will see things in a totally different way. And a lot, maybe even the most of the way that you used to look at things, just 
is irrelevant anymore because you've seen something, you've understood something, and you are experiencing something on a day-to-day basis that it is totally different and it renders a lot of your old way of thinking just obsolete and irrelevant. But up until that happens, yes, you can hold these ideas side by side. And that's one of the things that we need to talk about too, is how this is true. Uh, and and one of the reasons we're going to do that is to avoid the problem that comes from the idea that, well, if I believe this because it feels good and makes me happy, then that means the dharma must be this in order to fit in with it. And I, I, I want us to see where the path is that allows us to hold beliefs while we're pursuing a path that every part of it is personally verifiable, achievable, attainable. We don't have to accept anything on faith. Yes? While you're addressing what it feels like, can you add a little about... uh, I keep hearing a persistent rumor that you can be enlightened and not know it. And so that makes it really hard to tell whether you're getting anywhere. Um, Where do you hear that rumor? (laughs) Gosh, I've heard it three or four different times. And it, 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 I guess where I used to hear it most often was when I was hanging with the Zen Buddhists who really were kind of a clam-mouthed bunch anyway. And, um, and, and it really was exactly that. Well, you, you can be enlightened and not know it. And that's all they'd give me. And I was like, oh, well, okay. Okay. Well, first of all, it's not a thing where you're not enlightened, not enlightened, not enlightened, now you're enlightened. But that's... It's the, not like that. I know. That's, that's one of the things that we believe. Um, it's more like you're not enlightened, you're not enlightened, something happens, you're still not enlightened, but boy, you see things a lot differently, you're a little bit closer, you're still not enlightened, but it's better, you're still not enlightened, but it's better, something else happens, and then, okay, now, now maybe you're enlightened, but you're only at the first stage of enlightenment, and you still got a long way to go, and so you're at the first stage, you're at the first stage, you're at the first stage, something happened, now you're at the second stage. Now it is true in this process that it can be hard to know exactly where you are. So in, in the process of living a spiritual life, of learning, gaining a deeper understanding, of having insights, it's hard to know and I mean, sometimes that thing that I'm represented by the finger snap is really distinctive, and you know when it happened. But sometimes it isn't. And sometimes you're a ways past that point when it dawns on you that something's really changed. And so you could say about that person when that happens, well, yeah, they, they were enlightened, but they didn't know it. But they only achieved the first stage in a way. By enlightenment, by the time they, by the time they become more fully awakened or fully awakened, there is no question that they're going to know about it. But it is true 
that as you go along, you won't necessarily realize. You see, in the process of doing this practice, your life gets better, your understanding gets clearer, your, your reaction to circumstances changes, uh, you become less susceptible to, to uh, suffering, you become wiser, you become more compassionate. But you haven't reached the first stage of enlightenment until some changes have taken place that you're not going to be able to fall back from. So you can have all those kinds of experiences and it's still possible for you to fall back from them. And so, as long as that's the case, you're not really enlightened yet, but you might feel like you are. But the same thing's true. When those changes take place and you cross that threshold and you're no longer going to fall back, you might not realize that you've crossed that threshold yet. I mean, you will realize it, but it might take a little while to dawn. And it comes when... It, it comes with a thought, you know, you're, you're seeing how somebody you care about reacts to things and you're, you're saying, wow, I used to do that. I don't do that anymore. You know, I can't imagine myself doing that anymore. Then you know something's happened. And then you might think, well, this is, this is really, what is this, you know? So you, you, you can't be awakened even to a small degree for very long without beginning to, to, to suspect it. And if you could, then, hey, <coughs> is this such a great stuff anyway if you can't even tell whether you got it or not? <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's because it is a process that develops over time that you might not know where you are. Yes. For your teaching and historically, are awakening and enlightenment interchangeable? Uh, they are, yes. And uh, actually, the the more historical term is awakening. That's what the Buddha means to be awake. And uh, so. Awakening would be the more historically accurate term. But, and, and this, this is some of the things that we'll talk about. What the, the thing that we're talking about here is sometimes called liberation, uh, self-realization, uh, enlightenment, awakening. There's a lot of different terms. And each of these terms is referring to some slightly different aspect of, of, the, of the phenomenon. Um, the term awakening is referring to the fact that it has been like you were caught in a dream and now you've awakened from the dream. The enlightenment is, the term is, it's as though something had been illuminated. And you do find in the sutras the Buddha will answer somebody's question and they'll say, well, it's so, as though the lamp had been overturned and we were in darkness and now it's upright again and, and the light is on. You know, and that's what the term enlightenment is referring to, is that the wisdom that you've achieved, the understanding, the aha, I've got it now, kind of part of, part of the experience. The liberation refers to the fact that you are 
no longer driven by compulsions. You are liberated from suffering. Uh, and uh, So all of these terms are addressing different aspects of the same thing. But definitely, awakening, enlightenment, no matter what the term is, they're all referring to to the same thing. Well, at least within the context of, of, of Buddhism. Uh, the Western Enlightenment was just getting over superstition. Right? So. Yeah. Yes? I have a friend who <clears throat> keeps telling me you can't do it in your head. That you can't? That you can't do it in your head. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Well, there's an important part of the work that you do have to do in your head. But as far as achieving the goal, no, it can't be, by, by in your head, it can't be accomplished by thinking. It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not an intellectual uh, thing. You have to use your mind and your intellect um, as much as you can. And you, using an intellectual understanding is going to help you in very important ways. It's a very valuable part of it. But you could think and study for a thousand years, and you'd be somebody who'd had a lot of good thoughts and studied a lot, but wouldn't necessarily be awakened as a result. Um, let me just explain that. Our our mind is constantly creating a model of reality, a model of the way things are. And when we think and ponder, cogitate, what we're doing is we're, we're rearranging the components of our model and hopefully making the model a more workable one, one that corresponds to whatever reality is in enough of a better way that it's more functional, that it works, that it serves us better. And that's, that's what thinking's for, is to keep fine-tuning and improving the, the model that we're basing our, our, our experience on and our decisions and actions. But that model is the result of a, a much deeper intuitive perception of the way things are. Um, and if I can just digress a little bit, in science and in mathematics, it has been clearly established that whatever you come up with depends entirely on the starting propositions you began with. So, uh, logic and thinking, it, you know, properly applied logic and thinking will take you to a particular destination, but the destination is determined by your starting assumptions, which have not themselves been derived from logic or uh, proved in any way. You follow me there? Okay. And so, the models that our mind makes are based on these deep intuitive presumptions about who and what we are and the way things are. And so awakening involves a shift 
in those deep intuitive presumptions. Your worldview evolves out of some assumptions, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about. These are the things that the Buddha said. These are the delusions that we hold. He said, reality has three characteristics, and we don't we don't see and understand these characteristics that our fundamental intuitive view of reality comes from a misperceiving of these three fundamental characteristics. And everything that's built out of that leads to the kind of situation that we find ourselves ordinarily in, a life full of conflicts, a lot of suffering, dissatisfaction, and so forth. So the only way that you can make the kind of change that he's talking about is to change those deep intuitive assumptions that lie behind the mind's model making. And that's actually what happened when we're talking about achieving the first stage of awakening. This happens because there is, at a very deep level, a reprogramming of one of the sets of assumptions that you've been living by. And the same thing happens as you progress through to the, the complete and full awakening of, of Buddhahood or Arhatship is it's the result of, of that deep reprogramming of these assumptions that are not available. Uh, you can't do anything about them at the level of consciousness and thinking. It doesn't matter for the Buddha or anybody else to tell you that, well, this is the way, and then the Buddha does do this, we're going to go to it. This is the way things really are. This is the mistake you keep making about it. You know, it doesn't make any difference to tell you that. What you have to have is the kind of experiences that cause that deep intuitive part of your mind to reprogram itself and to start start processing everything in a completely different way. That's the point at which you cross the threshold to become enlightened. Um, when that hasn't happened, when the root, when the root of your misperceptions remains unchanged, you can tweak your model, but you can always fall back because no matter how much you tweak your model, there's certain inevitable things that are going to come from the from those root assumptions, and until they have been changed, until the root has been changed. Sooner or later, you'll have the same kind of flowers coming. It's only when you have a different root that you'll have a different kind of flower. You follow that analogy. Yeah. So, so if you change, what I heard was if you change your initial conditions in math, you can run the same model and get a different answer. Exactly. Right? So yeah. you're talking about changing the initial conditions. Exactly, yeah. Okay. yeah. And what we have to work with is something that's at one level, and uh, so the trick, the the magical trick we have to perform, is we have to we have to use what we have access to, to find a way to change those initial conditions. Okay. Which I suppose the counterpart in mathematics would be, uh, <coughs> or in science and engineering, when you do the math. And the answer you come up with doesn't fit with the reality you're faced with. You know you have to go back and change the initial condition. Yeah, although sometimes you can change the models, and then you get into the discussion of things like chaotic models versus linear <laughs> models and things like that. But, uh, 
So, all right. Well, let's 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 get into it then. Um, yes. So, some of the things that I'm going to talk about, I'm sure that you will have all heard about before. But I'm hoping that you're going to uh, maybe understand them a little more. Uh, deeply than you have before, a little differently than you have. So, the person that we call the Buddha, before he was the Buddha, he began his search when he became aware of the ultimately dissatisfactory nature of, of human existence. Uh, we can we we don't have a lot of information to go on, but we can speculate a bit on that. He is said to have pondered the um, the inevitability of sickness, aging, and death, and uh, found this disturbing. I'm sure none of you have ever. <laughs> and uh, he had been groomed to take over his father's responsibility uh, and, and there would be a lot of responsibility associated with running a small kingdom in northern India because you never knew when one of your neighbors was going to try to invade the well-being of the people depended upon your ability to make the right kind of decisions negotiations, treaties, muster an army when necessary, uh, everything else. And so with that kind of responsibility, it's not surprising that pondering the basic characteristics of life, and no matter what I do, everybody's going to get sick and suffer and get old and die, and be included, there's nothing I can do about it. What is the point of all of this? What is it all about? Is there, is there any, is there any way out of this? Not, not in the sense of you know, now I'm so, but is there any other way out of this? And that's what he set out to find. Now throughout his life, whenever he was asked, and he was asked a number of times as recorded. Uh, what do you teach? He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And we see that goes right back to his very reasons for leaving home in the first place. Is that life contains a lot of unpleasantness, a lot of suffering. It is. It seems to be existentially, ex existentially purposeless. I mean, we go through all of this to raise our children and try to give them a, a good shot at going through the same thing with no more no more hope for permanent satisfaction than than we have ourselves. No, it's kind of evil. It, it's kind, it's of, kind of evil, right? Doesn't it look that way? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, you're caught on this a horrible treadmill of 
repetition then. We, we struggle, suffer, uh, our children struggle and suffer, their children struggle and suffer, there's no end to it. And uh, this, is, this is the cycle of life. And so the Buddha set out concerned with the issue of suffering and looking for an end to, to the suffering in, in some form. I think we could probably safely assume that he was open to all kinds of possibilities, um, might have been satisfied just to find that, aha, okay, this is the meaning of it all. Okay, so this is the way it is, but at least now I know why and it has meaning and it has purpose, so I'll go along with it. You know, there's all kinds of possible answers. Uh, and in that time, there were a lot of different teachers that were offering different kinds of answers. And he studied with them. But if we go back to the question that people ask him, what did you teach? Let's just think, what, what other answers might they have been expecting or hoping for when he said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering? What other answers? Some of them, I'm pretty sure, were thinking uh, uh, wisdom. I, I teach wisdom. I teach the answer to all of your questions. You'll know how everything works. Some people, that's the answer they wanted. Uh, I'd have to say for my own sake, I didn't get into this as much out of from, from the suffering end of it as the wisdom end of it. I wanted to understand. I remember when I was a teenager that the most important thing to me is I wanted to know, I wanted to know how everything worked. I wanted to understand, I wanted to make sense of it. You know, and that was, my, that was my primary question. And some of the people that asked the Buddha what he taught, that's what they, they were hoping he was going to say. Well, as it turns out, they were lucky because the end of suffering comes together with wisdom at the same time. Wisdom brings about the end of suffering, and you can't get the end of suffering without getting wisdom, so it doesn't matter which one you were looking for, you'll get both. That's, that's a good part of it. Um, some of those people might have been hoping, could say, well, uh, I teach magical powers, walking through walls, being in several places at the same time, reading minds, blah, blah, blah. He didn't say that. They would have been perhaps somewhat more disappointed. Um, some people might have been hoping to say, well, I teach eternal life. You'll never have to die. Or in back in those days, everybody believed in reincarnation. Well, not everybody, but most people believed in reincarnation. So it might have taken the form, you'll never have to die again. And indeed, that's what his first two teachers taught. You do our thing, and okay, you're going to die once more, but that's it. You don't have to die anymore after that. That has a lot of parallels with the, uh, the promise that uh, if you live a good life, that... You, after your body dies, you will go to heaven and you will live eternally with no further death in, uh, in, a, in a paradise. 
Um, but this is another one of the answers that I'm sure that the people that asked this question were looking for and hoping that maybe he was going to, to offer. Yeah? Can you please contrast this with what I keep hearing is deathlessness? Well, um, what... Okay, this is an interesting thing. The, the, uh, the goal of the path is uh, it is described in many ways, and one of the ways it's described is as the deathless. Um, in a sense, if somebody came and was looking for I want eternal life, I want uh, I don't want to have to, to uh, ever die, or I don't want to have to die over and over again. This is indeed what he was offering, but he wouldn't say so because it is in a completely different form than anybody would have imagined. Because when somebody, somebody says, can I have eternal life, and you say, yeah, they picture it's me, I'm, I'm going to live forever, you know, like the vampires and the models, right? <laughs> hundreds of years old. Uh, or, or that you're going to be transported to a paradise where nobody dies. Of course, that brings up some problems. You're going to have a body or not. Well, you've got to have a body. Okay, if I have a body, when I have the body I die in when I'm 93, or do I get the one I had when I was 23? <laughs> you know, oh, kind of, anyway, beside the point. The thing is that when we when we ask for eternal life, we're we're asking once again a question based on a set of assumptions, and those are the very assumptions that change. What what the goal of path does offer is the deathless, but not in the way you think. You think that means that the self that I think I am will last forever, but what you're going to get at the end is that the self you think you are doesn't exist, never did, and never will. Can't die. Oh. <laughs> and, and it's a bit more difficult to understand. So, I, I think that uh, I think that there's something to be learned just by contemplating the Buddha's very most basic answer to the question of what he taught. He taught suffering and the end of suffering. Wisdom comes with the end of suffering, which is what many people want. A complete and final resolution to the problem that makes somebody crave eternal life. They do get that. But it's just not in the form that they expect to get. Uh, in a sense, even the kind of superpowers that they wish for, they get. But it's just it's not in the form they think. It's it's not in the form that they can say, hey, watch me do this. Walk me along. It's not that kind of superpower. And uh, as somebody said last night, they thought, well, if I beca- I- I've always thought if I become enlightened, I'm going to uh, see things completely different. It's like having uh, uh, seeing infrared or having uh, x ray vision or something like that. You know, this is the comic book thing. And that is exactly what you did. You see everything totally different. Because you don't see everything totally different in that way that you imagine. 
you see everything totally different because at a fundamental deep level your perception of reality has made a major shift and so you see things differently than you have in ways that you can't even imagine so you do even get the superpowers so the problem is that that what people are looking for is a part of this but a lot of times it's not in the form that they think it is it's not in the form they imagine. And so the Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And that's what he left home to do. And that's what he spent seven years studying with all kinds of different people, trying to, uh, trying to find the answers to these questions. And he succeeded. So suffering and the end of suffering, he presents as what are called the four noble truths. After his enlightenment, the very first teaching he gave was called Turning the Wheel of the Dharma, and he taught the Four Noble Truths. And that sutra is pretty short, and it sketches out the Four Noble Truths in a very brief way. But what we find is that he was giving this teaching to a group of companions who had been with him for many, many years as he had worked with different teachers and he had practiced austerities. So they weren't beginners at this themselves. And this teaching went on over a series of many days, during which time each of them would take turns, one of them going into town to gather enough alms food to bring back to feed the rest while the teaching went on. Yet it's all encapsulated in a little sutra that you can you can read or recite in less than 20 minutes. So, <laughs> but it contains, it's expressed as, the, as these four noble truths. Noble, by the way, the way the Buddha used the term noble, Arya, means someone who has achieved at least the first stage of awakening. So these are the truths, uh, these are the truths that are known and understood by somebody who's achieved at least the first stage of awakening, the Four Noble Truths. And the first two of them, the fir- well, the first one is the truth of the nature of suffering. And the second one is the truth of the cause of suffering. So these two are these, are, these, are, these first two are, are suffering. I teach suffering. I teach the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering. The next two are the truth of the cessation of suffering and the path to the cessation of suffering. So the next two truths are about the other part, the end of suffering. So that's where, that, I think that's where we need to start. Because on the one hand, the very condensed sutra that we have was the very first teaching that the Buddha gave. And on the other hand, as we see when we look at it, this comprises the entirety of the Dharma. There is nothing left out of of the Four Noble Truths. It's just a question to go deeper and you go deeper and you go deeper, especially, especially in the last truth, the path to the end of suffering. Because after all, that is the most challenging one. Does that sutra have a name? 
What's that? Does that sutra have a name? Yeah, yeah it's a Dhamma Chakra uh, Pavatana Sutra. It's the turning of the wheel of the Dharma Sutra. So, let's look at this first truth. Now, I know you've heard the first of the noble truths, right? All life is suffering, or something like that, right? What's that? Life is pain. Life is pain. Life is pain. Yeah. Well, what that truth is about is the nature of suffering. The Buddha spent uh, several decades expanding upon this, and so we need to look into a lot of other sutras to fill in the gaps that are not contained in this 20-minute sutra. The things that he must have talked about in the days and nights with these five already well-informed and well-experienced practitioners. So, that the, the, the... the truth of the nature of suffering, well, actually, it's the truth of the nature of dukkha. Not suffering isn't a good translation of dukkha, but we need to look at the meaning of that word so that we can understand the term suffering in a proper way. So, dukkha means, in the most literal sense, dissatisfactoriness or unsatisfactoriness or unpleasantness. And so, when we use the word suffering, we may immediately think of of things that are pretty painful, that are fairly extreme. But it doesn't mean just that. It means even the most subtle, even the most subtle uh, shades of, of unpleasantness and dissatisfactoriness things that uh, you would like not to be the way they are. It means not just the burning, searing pain, but also the itches. Now, elsewhere, when the Buddha discusses uh, dukkha, it's identified as being belonging to a category of feelings, of which there are three basic kinds of feelings. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Or neither pleasant nor unpleasant is neutral. And then they are further differentiated as to pleasant feelings that are physical in origin, unpleasant feelings that are physical in origin, you know, pain and physical pleasure. We might include things like that, loud noises that are painful, uh, unpleasant odors that are painful, but these are all things that they are physical in origin. Then there's this other category of things that are pleasant and unpleasant that are mental in origin. Emotional pain, emotional suffering, mental suffering, grieving. So is that distinction clear for you? Yeah. What do you think of the translation of dukkha as stress? In some of the recent stuff I've been reading, some people are choosing to translate it as stress. And, you know, I've heard some people like that translation of that stuff. Yeah, I've seen that too. And the thing is that 
It, I, it, no, it doesn't work for me, and I'll tell you why. First of all, stress, what we mean by stress in English, is something that isn't necessarily always bad. Uh, stress is the result of uh, a challenge, and if you're able to meet that challenge, then the stressor is actually beneficial to you. I mean, we need that. We know if we don't go for a walk or lift some weights or something like that, that you know, the body quits working. The same thing with the mind. So, uh, strictly speaking, we need, we need stress, and it's not always bad. Stress becomes bad when uh, when we can't cope with it, when we can't deal with it, when it when it overwhelms us. And really, I think the people that are translating that are looking not really so much as at, at the meaning of stress in this sense as sort of the everyday, I've got too much stress in my life. This is stressful. You know, my marriage is stressful. You know, my kids are driving me crazy. My job is stressful. This is what they're talking about. Now, in that sense, this is touching on it, but it's such an inadequate expression of it. You know, dukkha, what dukkha really means is anything that has, has a quality of unpleasantness associated with it. And granted that stress does, but how many people are going to consider an itch on the side of their nose stress? And, you know... Uh, Dying of a, a painful form of cancer is definitely stressful, but the word is just not encompassing all of the other elements that are there. So I think we're actually better off if we if we go back to the more basic fundamental meaning. You know, if we if we use a term like unpleasantness or unsatisfactoriness and then explain what we mean by it. The whole range, yeah. So if you talk about pleasantness and unpleasantness, and then neutral, which I'm more interested personally in the concept of neutral because that's where I like. For me, I'm striving to, to work in neutral in some of my martial arts. And, and what I've been discovering is you can't have neutral if you don't have both the pleasant and unpleasantness. And what it's really about is transitioning between the two, so that they both exist simultaneously in the neutral spot. I don't know if you're going to talk more about the neutral state. Well, uh, I, I, I will. I, I, let me talk about it a little bit right now. If we, if we, uh, if you devote some time, as you seem to have been, to noticing the pleasant and unpleasant or neutral qualities of things, then this is a practice. This is a Buddhist practice. What you'll discover is that as your perception of subtle degrees of pleasantness and unpleasant becomes more and more refined, there's less and less neutral. What you used to think was neutral is, is just either subtly pleasant or subtly unpleasant. And so neutral begins to become a vanishing single, single little point. Right, it's not that line. That's right. 
what I think you are interested in, and what we're all interested in, is not is not having neutral experience, but having equanimity, so that we don't react to the pleasant and we don't react to the unpleasant the way we have. And that's really what we're getting to here. Uh, let's carry on with the discussion of the truth of suffering. Okay. And we've distinguished between pain and mental or emotional suffering. Uh, and we can see that they're really two different things. And we'll see that they're linked. When something happens to you that's painful, it's usually followed immediately by, the, the, by some emotional anguish. Um, let me just stay with this a moment and make sure everybody, I think everyone has had an experience where they have had a painful experience of some kind, but they haven't had a mental painful, a mental uh, suffering response to it. So is everybody aware that although maybe 99% of the time, the instant we have pain, we have mental suffering that follows right after it. But has everybody had those occasions where it doesn't? You know what I mean? Okay. This is something that I'm going to ask you to work with. Because this, one of the things that the Buddha was doing the last few years before his enlightenment is he was practicing, he was doing practices that involved a lot of pain. He was doing the idea of these practices was to overcome pain, to overcome suffering. And so these yogis would do things to themselves, put themselves in circumstances that were unpleasant. Uh, and they were searching for, they were trying to achieve liberation from pain, the transcendence of pain. And I think in that process, the Buddha, this is probably the time at which the Buddha learned the nature of pain, the first noble truth. The distinction between physical pain and the mind's reaction to it. Because I'd like you all to take whatever degree of experience of this you've had before and develop it. Your life, I promise you, will give you more than enough pain to work with. And not only that, we're going to do a meditation in a little while where I'm going to ask you to meditate in a way that's going to produce a certain amount of discomfort just so that you can work with us. Okay? But what the Buddha said is that when an ordinary person experiences a painful event, it's like being shot with two arrows. First is the arrow of pain, the physical unpleasantness. Then immediately follows the arrow of mental anguish. He said an awakened person doesn't do that. They may be shocked by the arrow of pain, but it is not followed by any mental anguish. Because they have learned, they learned that they don't have to do that. And um, Shinzen teaches this as a mathematical formula, he says that pain times resistance equals suffering. 
and this is true, if we look at what's producing, if we look at what's producing the uh, mental anguish, it is the resistance to the pain. This is really getting getting into the second truth now. We'll talk more about it later, but it's it, the implications of it are already present when we start talking about the, the first truth. If mental pain and physical pain are two different things, if they are separable from each other, then what's normally happening to us is a combination of the two. And the mental suffering that our mind generates enormously amplifies what would ordinarily only be an unpleasant physical experience. That's the point. And so what the first truth is telling us is because these are two different things, then the one, pain, is dependent upon physical circumstances. If you have a body with nerve endings and you live in a material world, you're going to experience pain. And this is what the Buddha said. He said, birth's painful, uh, sickness and injury painful, getting old painful, dying painful. You cannot avoid pain in life. Pain is an inevitable part of life. Suffering, on the other hand, mental suffering, it comes from the mind. If it comes from the mind, perhaps the mind can do something about it. What he's telling us is that the mental aspect of dukkha is ultimately under our control. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. That, I'll tell you something. When, when the Buddha first gave this teaching, his preamble to his present, to, to his, uh, to, to the, uh, uh, his previous companions, he said, I'm going to tell you something that you've never heard before. I'm going to tell you something that, that is brand new and amazing. So listen up, guys. And then what we see in the sutras is life is full of suffering. You know, and I've, if that's what he'd really said, and I'd been one of those guys, I'd say, what, what's he been smoking? <laughs> Everybody knows this. This is not something new and wonderful. The new and, one, this, the new and wonderful thing that he taught about dukkha is that it was of two kinds. It was one kind, yes, it's inevitable. But the other kind is not. The other kind is a choice. And deeper than that, we find that the physical unpleasantness, if it's not accompanied by the mental suffering, isn't that bad. It's not that hard to deal with. Okay. Now, there are other forms of... Uh, Dukkha takes other forms, and he listed those. After he'd gone through... through uh, birth, life, sickness, aging, death. He listed some other kinds of suffering. But uh, I probably look at the hand I'm reading to you more easily than I can remember them. Yeah, top of page two. Okay. 
grief and sorrow, lamentation, despair, loss, not getting what you want and getting what you don't want. Yeah, okay. That's a different kind of dukkha. All of those kinds of dukkha are entirely mental, right? I mean, what you don't get might be a physical thing, or what you get that you don't want might be a physical thing. But the suffering that comes from that, that's entirely mental. The grief and lamentation, that's entirely mental. Despair, that's entirely mental. So, what it comes down to is that you can deal with the mental aspect of suffering. What you're going to be left with is a little bit of physical unpleasantness that's inevitable, that's like a thread that runs through life. We're physical organisms, we live in this kind of a world, so hey, that's going to happen. But if we can eliminate all this mental suffering that goes with it, that's, that's a tremendous accomplishment. That's fabulous. That is something amazing. That's new and wonderful information. That's what this truth is about. Now there's a corollary to this. This is also something that's found in the later teachings, not in that one little short sutra where he summarizes it, but I'm sure he touched upon it when he was talking to these other fellows. Which is that what is true of pain and suffering is also true of pleasure and happiness. There's a certain amount of physical pleasure that is inevitably a part of life. You know, which is a, a wonderful thing and it's something that we'll use in meditation. When you find when you find that there's pain in your body or when you find that there's restlessness and impatience arising, if you look, you'll find at the same time there is pleasantness. That even while your ankle hurts, some other part of your body feels really kind of nice. Yeah. So pleasure is equally an inevitable part of the existence that we have. And happiness is equally a choice. And then another subtle thing that he teaches later on is that as you become more and more familiar with the different kinds of happiness and unhappiness that we experience, and who isn't aware that happiness and unhappiness are often kind of a mixed bag, some of each? But they're really, they really lie on a spectrum. And um, I think there's one sutra, I think it's called the, the uh, uh, Sutra on Emptiness, the Greater and Lesser Sutras on Emptiness, where he talks about this spectrum, that, that the ultimate highest form of happiness, of bliss, corresponds to the total absence <coughs> of any kind of suffering. That happiness isn't this green stuff over here and unhappiness is this red stuff over here. But they're on a scale. And the more you have of one, the less you have of another. And the most sublime possible happiness is achieved not by having a whole lot of good feeling things happen to you, but by the complete absence of suffering. That is the bliss beyond understanding. So, as a corollary, sort of hidden within this first noble truth, is not just that pain is inevitable 
but suffering is optional. It's that pain and pleasure are both inevitable. They're not within your control. There's nothing you can do about them, although we spend a lot of time trying. But suffering and happiness, they are mental and to confirm this last statement, we have to go through the other three truths. But suffering and happiness are completely a choice. They're completely up to you. And that is what the other three truths are about. They're about the fact that you can. You can choose to do the things that are necessary to achieve the sublimely happy state and be completely free from suffering. That's the liberation that's offered. And the wisdom and the compassion come as bonuses. So that's the truth of suffering. It's the truth of the nature of suffering. That suffering is of two kinds, physical and mental. That the physical, you can't do anything about. But the mental, you can. And when you learn to deal with the mental, it turns out the physical is no big deal after all. No big deal after all. And this is... <coughs> This, this we'll look at a little more closely. We need to get into the second noble truth of the cause of suffering to, to see that. Any questions about this first truth, though? Yeah? There's, it seems to me in my experience there's a mental anguish that is manifested primarily physically. You know, that's, that's, you said, can you comment on that? Well, it is true that Pretty well, all of our emotions are. I'm oh, sorry. Okay, the, the question was: Can I comment on the fact that mental anguish has a physical component to it? Right. Versus sheer physical pain. Pure, versus pure physical pain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and this is this is this is a good thing to keep in our minds as we go along. All of our emotions manifest physically in the body. They cause our heart rate to change, our breathing to change, our skin temperature to change, uh, our uh, more or less moisture in our skin. There's all kinds of physiological parameters that you can measure that are related to emotions. And not only that, whatever emotion you're feeling usually manifests in some kind of feeling in the body as well. So when you're feeling extreme mental anguish, you will feel physical discomfort in your body. You know, that tightness in your chest, the feeling in your throat, in your forehead, behind your eyes, all of these kinds of things. These are the physical manifestations of the, of the emotions. Um, but if you can eliminate the, the negative emotion, the anguish that's producing the sensations, then the sensations go away. If, if somebody dropped a rock on your foot, you don't need to suffer, but it's still gonna, your, your, your foot's gonna still hurt. But if you're feeling this terrible tightness in your throat due to an emotion, when you release the emotion, the tightness goes away. Other questions about the first noble truth? Um, yes. Uh, I'm curious what you would say about the subject of grief, because that would be one of the ones that you would label as optional suffering. And yet, when I think about 
In the absence of grief, what comes up is a sense of disloyalty to the person that I'm grieving for. Until, until you've reached a certain stage of realization, if someone you loved or lost and you didn't feel grief, you would either be repressing it or there would be something wrong. It's not a, it's not a healthy and normal thing. Um, <clears throat> let's think of it this way. It is in our nature that our mind responds to that kind of a loss by generating the emotion of grief. And you would expect that normal thing to happen. What is going to change, though, is that even at the first stage of enlightenment, you don't need to suffer as deeply from that grief. You can feel the grief without, without it being so intensely, personally traumatic. And I don't think that uh, you are at any risk of feeling disloyal to the person. I mean, the truth is that most of our grief is, has to do with our loss. And uh, some of it we identify with the the other person, and and we experience some of the thing that you know. Well, when I die, I'm going to really miss me. So I'm sure he really misses himself. <laughs> and we feel for that, and, and and that's not selfish. But a huge part of our grief is there's now this gap in my life. These things that I had. These experiences that I had, this, this love and, uh, and this closeness, and this companionship, this et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that I had, I don't have anymore. I have to get used to living without it. I have to readjust myself and, and find new things to replace it. And the organism would always prefer to hold on to what it has rather than have to adapt to the loss of something. So that's the kind of grief, that, that's the aspect of grief that is going to diminish. And the more fully realized you are, the less of that kind of grief that you're going to experience. And now when it comes to a fully realized being, an arhat, a Buddha, we can only, we can only go by what we're told. But it is such a profoundly different view of reality that the brain mechanism that would normally trigger grief doesn't need to do that anymore. But it's not until you reach that point that you're not going to experience the normal emotional response. But the amount of suffering that needs to accompany that diminishes progressively as you become wiser. And as a matter of fact, just for a moment, let's think about what happens. You've lost somebody and you're grieving and there's a lot of pain. How does that disappear? What you find is that your the grief you suffer is interrupted by periods in which you accept what has happened. Sometimes it happens because you spent so many hours in continuous mental agony that your mind just can't keep it up. So it lets it go and you have a respite. You come to a place of acceptance and you just you know, you, you just can't hurt anymore, and so you don't for a little while. But then it comes back again. But over time, what you find is more and more you accept what has happened. You accept what's changed. You accept the loss. 
and it's in that acceptance that the pain goes away, right? That's and, and when we get to the point where we mostly overcome our grief, I mean, not that it can't come back years later when something triggers a fond memory and if only she were still with me, we would be doing that, or she always said so-and-so, whatever it is. But the rest of our life, we've accepted, and it's the acceptance of what is that completely eliminates the suffering, right? Yeah. So what we're talking about, when we're saying that an awakened person is not going to be susceptible to grief and lamentation in the same way, it's because they are coming from a place of acceptance. It's not because they're coming from a place of not having feelings, not caring, disloyalty, some sort of uh, just dull insensitivity. And that would be terrible. Who would want to become awakened if it meant being that dull and insensitive? Only somebody who's presently going through grief. They'd go for it. <laughs> So, uh, does that clarify the distinction? Yes. I think this relates to what you were just talking about and also to the stages of awakening. And it's probably not directly related to the first noble truth, but you, you mentioned it as you were talking about it. So I just want it to, to be... Um, on the table as we go forward because it seems like it's something I deal with almost daily. And that is um, the, the gap or the distance between the pain and eliminating the suffering. And it seems to me that um, what you're describing as we come more awakened the gap will be much smaller and we'll be able to go there. You said almost a, a fully enlightened person, realized person would be able to almost go there immediately, like it doesn't even really enter into their process, that they, that they don't take on the grief or they don't take on the, the difficult emotions. But as we're developing, what I see anyways, as we're developing, you know, skillful means to use the steps to help us eliminate the suffering, as you were saying. But it seems to me that if I, if I sort of try to do that too early in the process, that it is sort of detrimental. And I hope to become more skillful at. Um, at experiencing the pain and seeing that um, either my over-examining it, you know, wanting to stay with it, feel the feelings. Like sometimes, you know, I have a history of not feeling my feelings yeah. for a long time, yeah. so that is sort of a power that in some ways I don't want to let go of. You know, I want to feel that feeling. But I realize that that in itself can also become a detriment by staying with it too long. So if, as we go through these other uh, noble truths, we could look, and, and you'll probably do it anyway, but you know, the, the, the practical, concrete steps for becoming more skillful with that. Yeah. 
uh, there's a really important thing here that we need to, that you've brought up that we need to focus on a little bit. As we're going to see, especially when we get into the second truth, there is absolutely no element of repressing in, in this at all. And the, one of the tricks that many of us have learned is to dissociate from our, our suffering. And that's not what this is about. It's not about insulating ourselves from it. It's, a, it's, a, it's something completely different. It is understanding the cause of the suffering, identifying the cause, and then taking action to do with the cause. So, you know, here's the suffering, and all these other things we do are we're trying to, to suppress or mask or shield ourselves from the suffering. We're all focused on the suffering. But really what, what we're going to be talking about here is this suffering is all coming from this cause. This cause is continuously. So what we're going to do is going to let the suffering be there. We're not going to do anything with it. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the cause. And to the degree, you know, it, 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 it's like a faucet. To the degree that we can close it just a little bit, you know, suffering decreases. So we're going to focus on, on that. And you're absolutely right. If you, if you try to do this too soon, uh, before you've developed the skill at identifying the cause, and the cause is a reality in this moment. It's not an abstraction. It's what something that's happening in your mind in the moment you're experiencing suffering. So if you try to do this before you have the skill in identifying the cause so that you can work with the cause, then you're just going to end up reverting to the old pattern of behavior of just somehow trying to avoid or repress or suppress the suffering. Yeah. I have a relative who does anticipatory grieving. She knew Grandpa was going to go in two years before Grandpa went. And every day, she she did a lot of, oh, I have to get it now, it's going to be gone, oh, I have to, and a lot of what kept going on in her mind seemed very clearly, if I can just hurt myself enough, I'll get a callus, so when it really happens, it won't hurt. Yeah. And then she found out, you don't get a callus. Yeah, right. This is, and a lot of people do, this is worry. Worry. This is, this is worry. This is, you know, we think if we worry enough that we're, we're either going to not be bothered when it happens or else we're going to think of some way to keep it from happening. So it's the same thing. Yeah. And it doesn't work. No, it's not a, it's not a viable solution. It's, <laughs> okay. uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's something, actually worrying is something that uh, is largely learned. And if, if your mother's a worrier, there's a good chance you're going to be. <laughs> Um, but if you can look at your mother and understand what she's going through, there's also a good chance that you can stop being a warrior. Yeah. Would you say that um, mindfulness or, or um, mindfulness with clear comprehension is crucial to identifying the cause? Yes, it is. It is. As you, yeah, as we develop in this, we're, I think we're, we're going to take a break very soon, and then, and then we'll 
would go on in the progress. But what we're going to see is that, like this, as I said, all three parts work together: the wisdom, the virtue, and the meditation. And meditation develops mindfulness with clear comprehension. And this, one of its benefits very early on in the process is as you begin to have more mindfulness, it begins to be easier for you to recognize the cause of your suffering in the moment. And therefore, at the very least, you can deal with it in, in a little more wholesome and productive way. As you go along, you'll be able to deal with it more and more effectively. But from the very beginning. And uh, yeah, mindfulness, and that aspect of mindfulness, clear comprehension refers to be knowing what's going on in your mind, knowing what's happening, what effect it's producing, what it's arising from, and whether or not it's something that you want to, something that it suits you to allow to continue. Once you have that kind of clear comprehension, you now have options available to you that you can exercise to try to do something about the situation.